All right, we're now in lecture 13, part one. In the final part of the last lecture, then, I was talking about or introducing the concept of times of sympathetic or parasympathetic dominance. And before going into that, I said that, you know, there is always throughout the course of a 24-hour period, there's always some degree of activity in both sympathetic and parasympathetic neurons. And that's typically referred to as sympathetic tone or parasympathetic tone. And the ratio of sympathetic tone to parasympathetic tone right, is going to determine whether the activity of a tissue is more influenced by sympathetic neurons or parasympathetic neurons. So this ratio then really dictates um, which division is mostly, has most influence on organ activity, assuming that that organ is innervated by both sympathetic and parasympathetic neurons. All right, so there, there's this ongoing level of sympathetic and parasympathetic tone, but depending upon, again, your circumstance and what you're doing is that ratio of tone can vary and the general times of sympathetic dominance, which is what we started to get into, were, are during times of stress and physical activity. So this is when the ratio of sympathetic to parasympathetic tone is high. So the sympathetic times of dominance, uh, it affects organ activity, many different organ activities to promote what Walter Cannon called the fight or flight responses. And some examples of sympathetic effects when sympathetic tone dominates is that leads to an increase in heart rate and increase in nutrient mobilization from internal stores internal stores being the, the liver the liver stores glycogen which is a form of glucose uh, adipose tissue stores Fats and mobilizes fatty acids, so those are affected. Uh, we see an increase in sweating. Sympathetic activity stimulates sweat glands. We see lung airway relaxation uh, through effects on smooth muscle in the lungs, and this. Uh, helps promote ventilation. 
there is a general decrease in digestive system activity and that is in both the uh, motility of the gut and that refers to the activity of the smooth muscle within the digestive tract as well as in the digestive secretions. And there's also a number of changes in blood flow to different tissues. So all of these, and this is just a, a, a limited snapshot of some of the effects that higher sympathetic tone, uh, when sympathetic activity dominates to these different tissues, that the effects that it has. And all of these are conducive for promoting uh, increased physical activity, or, or at least preparing the body for higher physical activity. Times of parasympathetic dominance. Uh, so the sympathetic activity and parasympathetic activity are most often antagonistic to one another. So if sympathetic activity is high during times of stress and physical activity, then it's reasonable to think that parasympathetic activity is going to be high during non-stressful and non-physical activity. And that's generally the case, is that uh, dominance of parasympathetic activity occurs during rest as well as food intake during a meal. And so Walter Cannon also termed the, the effects that parasympathetic activity has as the um, rest and digest response. So this is promoted by higher parasympathetic activity. All right, so in this case, times of parasympathetic dominance, the ratio of sympathetic, uh, sympathetic tone to parasympathetic tone is low, right? When parasympathetic activity is high, this ratio is going to be low. Now, some of the effects promoted by high parasympathetic activity are essentially the opposite of the sympathetic dominance. So there's a reduction in cardiac activity, so there's a decrease in heart rate. Uh, there's an increase in nutrient storage that occurs, the liver storing glucose, adipose tissue storing fatty acids, 
there's a strong stimulation of the digestive system. And that is through both an increase in gut motility, increased contraction of the smooth muscle in the gut, as well as increase in digestive secretions to help promote breakdown of the food you ingest. There's also, um, let me put an increase in lung airway constriction through stimulating smooth muscle in the lung airways. Uh, so, so these are some of the main effects of higher parasympathetic activity. Now, as I said, these are some just some simple examples. A more comprehensive uh, description of these changes are shown in Table 7.1 in the book on page 238. So you can look at that to see a bit more detailed breakdown of uh, the effects that, that sympathetic and parasympathetic activity have on different tissues in the body. But again, if you just think about, as a general rule of thumb, uh, what effect that sympathetic or parasympathetic neurons are going to have on an organ, is it going to stimulate the activity of that organ or inhibit the activity? Uh, just think about, well, how would that organ... How would that organ's activity be affected during exercise or stress or during rest? And from that intuitive understanding, you can get an idea of whether or not uh, sympathetic neurons are going to stimulate or inhibit a tissue, and the same with parasympathetic neurons. Okay, so this leads us into talking about Autonomic communication and the neurotransmitters and receptors involved. That mediate all these effects. This is actually important because many different uh, medical interventions depend upon an understanding of how autonomic neurons communicate with particular organs. You know, what neurotransmitters do they use, release, and what receptors uh, bind to those neurotransmitters to trigger the response. And let me bring in, I'm gonna recopy uh, this figure. It's already showed this. This is figure 7-1 in the book. And what we're interested in understanding here are the neurotransmitter released by the preganglionic neurons, which then elicits communication to the postganglionic neuron, and 
the neurotransmitter released by the postganglionic neuron that then triggers communication with the cells in the effector organ. And the receptors that we're also interested in are the receptors found on the postganglionic neurons that mediate the responses to the neurotransmitter released by the preganglionic neuron, and also the receptors found on the effector cells in the end organ. So we're going to detail uh, all four of these for both sympathetic and parasympathetic neurons. Now, before I get to that, just one thing I want to mention here is you'll notice in this figure that uh, they're showing the postganglionic neuron here that innervates the effector organ as having these somewhat odd-looking nodules on them, what are called, each of these is called a varicosity. So autonomic neurons, the postganglionic autonomic neurons, they don't have uh, a traditional axon terminal per se. So each branch of the axon doesn't end in one discrete terminal. Instead, they have these nodules or varicosities along each branch. And each of these varicosities is a site of neurotransmitter release. And each branch of the axon has multiple varicosities. Not just a single axon terminal. So that means that an autonomic neuron can release an extensive amount of neurotransmitter uh, because of this structural arrangement of these varicosities and thereby affect a number of cells in the effector organ. And just to illustrate this better, there's actually a figure in chapter 8, which I'll bring in here, that shows this. And this is, I think, let's see, what figure is this? This is figure 833 on page 292 in the book. So it's illustrating here the axon of a postganglionic neuron innervating smooth muscle. So smooth muscle within some organ. And you'll notice here that the way that they're showing this is that each branch of the axon here, they're showing multiple varicosities along that branch. And each of those varicosities, right, when an action potential comes down, it's going to distribute along all of these um, branches to depolarize each varicosity to cause neurotransmitter release. Right, so you get a much broader release of neurotransmitter 
affecting a number of cells in the end organ. And the other thing to note about varicosities is that it does not form a specialized synapse. with an individual cell instead the varicosity just sort of sits sits there in the interstitial fluid surrounding different cells and when neurotransmitter is released from the varicosity then that neurotransmitter can diffuse it out into the interstitial fluid and can affect the activity of more than one cell. All right, so in this way, these autonomic neurons, postganglionic, have multiple varicosities. Each varicosity, the neurotransmitter can affect more than one cell. So there's a widespread effect that a single postganglionic autonomic neuron can affect the activity of many effector cells within an organ. And this inset here is just showing a magnified view of a single varicosity, showing that these varicosities, they're similar to an axon terminal in having the secretory vesicles that are triggered to undergo exocytosis in response to calcium influx just like at an axon terminal, but there are many of them along the length of a um, branch of an axon. So that's what's being illustrated up here in figure 7-1, are the individual varicosities and the somewhat unique release of neurotransmitter from these postganglionic neurons. All right, so let's get into these uh, neurotransmitters and receptors. And we'll start with sympathetic neurons. Now, keep in mind that most sympathetic neurons, they have the preganglionic neurons have relatively short axons because the ganglia that they innervate are closer to the central nervous system. And remember, those ganglia are the paravertebral ganglia, the cervical ganglia, and the collateral ganglia. And those are relatively close to the spinal cord and the brainstem. Uh, the postganglionic neurons, then, have longer axons compared to the preganglionic. And this is opposite of what um, the parasympathetic neurons are, where the ganglia are quite close to the organ being innervated, or they're actually within the organ. So the preganglionic axons are much longer than the postganglionic ones. So let's just draw an illustration of this. Here's a preganglionic neuron. Here's the central nervous system. Right, particularly, this is going to be the thoracic or lumbar region of the spinal cord where these cell bodies are found. And 
uh, postganglionic neuron coming out with a much longer axon than innervating the organ. Again, specifically the smooth muscle cells, cardiac muscle cells, or the endocrine cells or exocrine cells. And here are our sympathetic ganglia. So the neurotransmitter for the preganglionic sympathetic neurons here, the neurotransmitter released is acetylcholine, which we'll abbreviate as ACH, acetylcholine. Whereas for the postganglionic neurons, sympathetic neurons, the neurotransmitter released here is norepinephrine, which we'll abbreviate as NE, norepinephrine. There are a few exceptions. Uh, the sympathetic postganglionic neurons that innervate sweat glands in the body uh, also release acetylcholine. But otherwise, neuro norepinephrine is the neurotransmitter. And this is true for all sympathetic preganglionic axons or neurons. They release acetylcholine. And the vast majority of postganglionic sympathetic neurons release norepinephrine. And that's pretty much it. So it's a fairly strict type of neurotransmitter that these neurons release. Now, any neuron that releases acetylcholine is described as being a, a cholinergic neuron. So we can say that sympathetic preganglionic neurons are cholinergic. It's just an adjective saying that describing the neurotransmitter released, acetylcholine. And any neuron that releases norepinephrine is what's called an adrenergic neuron. Cholinergic and adrenergic. And adrenergic comes from adrenaline, which is uh, another name for epinephrine. And epinephrine is highly similar to norepinephrine. So adrenergic then. So let's talk now about the um, receptors. So the receptors here on the dendrites and cell body of the postganglionic neurons that respond to the acetylcholine, uh, these are obviously going to be, well, we can describe them as being cholinergic receptors, right, because they're going to be receptors that specifically bind to acetylcholine. And 
those receptors, so there's two different types of cholinergic receptors. The type that's found on the postganglionic uh, neurons are the, what are called the nicotinic acetylcholine receptors. Right. And all sympathetic postganglionic neurons have these particular types of receptors. These receptors are ligand-gated channels. Right, so when they bind to the acetylcholine, it triggers the receptor's channel activity to open. And these channels are non-selective cation channels. Non-selective meaning that they allow more than one type of ion to move through the channel. And the types of ion, the cation refers to a positively charged ion. They allow movement of sodium and potassium. Can diffuse through the channel. All right, so that's why they're called non-selective. Now, why were they originally called nicotinic receptors? Well, this is related to the pharmacology of these receptors in terms of what um, other compounds they can bind to elicit opening of the channel. And one of those compounds happens to be nicotine, right, the ingredient in cigarettes and tobacco. And nicotine is a potent activator of these receptors. So they call it the nicotinic receptor. And indeed, uh, if you a person who uh, smokes cigarettes or chews tobacco, uh, part of the effect that the um, cigarette or tobacco has is through the activation of these nicotinic receptors. All right, the end result of the activation of nicotinic receptors is uh, excitatory postsynaptic potentials in the postganglionic neurons. All right, so this is an excitatory synapse. And this is true for, for all preganglionic neurons communicating with postganglionic neurons. Uh, there are no IPSP inputs to the postganglionic neurons through the preganglionic neurons. Same preganglionic neurotransmitter released, same type of receptor found on all of the postganglionic neurons, therefore they are all excitatory synapses. Now let's look at the communication between the sympathetic postganglionic neurons and these cells on the end organ. So now our focus is over here on the receptors found 
on the cells innervated by sympathetic neurons. Now, any receptor that recognizes and binds to norepinephrine or its close cousin, epinephrine, is going to be called an adrenergic receptor. So these are going to be adrenergic receptors found on the cells in these tissues. And adrenergic receptors come in two main types. They're what are called um, the alpha adrenergic receptors. So Greek symbol alpha and the beta adrenergic receptors. Now, both of these broad groups of receptors are G-protein coupled receptors. not ligand-gated channels. So the effects on changing activity of these cells within the effector organ are mediated through uh, G-protein-coupled receptors and changing the, acti uh, the amount of second messenger within these cells. Now, alpha and beta adrenergic receptors are further subdivided into what are called the alpha-1 and the alpha-2 subtypes and the same is true for the beta receptors is that there's a beta 1 receptor and a beta 2 receptor and we don't need to know what exactly distinguishes these different subtypes it's again based upon pharmacology they all bind norepinephrine um, but they have slightly different affinity to do so but the important thing about these subtypes is uh, the responses that they mediate, whether they lead to increased activity in the, the cells or inhibit the activity of the cells, uh, can be determined by the type of receptor expressed. And the alpha-1 generally causes excitation or increased activity when it binds to norepinephrine. And the same is true for the beta-1. This generally leads to increased excitation of the cells to upregulate their activity. But if cells express the alpha-2 or beta-2, this usually leads to inhibition or reduced activity of the cells. And again, this is based upon the alpha-2 and the beta-2 interact with a different type of G protein than the alpha-1 and the beta-1. And those different G proteins that they interact with then lead to different responses to the second messenger system. All right, so this is why the same neurotransmitter release, norepinephrine, can have stimulatory effects in some tissues and inhibitory effects in others. All right, so that's sympathetic communication. All preganglionic neurons are Neurons are cholinergic, all postganglionic neurons, well, the vast majority of them are uh, adrenergic.
So now let's look at the parasympathetic communication. So here, just to diagram this, we're going to draw a longer, much longer preganglionic axon. Right, here's our preganglionic neuron leaving the CNS through either a cranial nerve or uh, a sacral nerve, communicating with the postganglionic neuron in a terminal ganglia or cranial ganglia. And then we have short postganglionic axons that then innervate smooth muscle, cardiac muscle, or endocrine or exocrine gland cells. And here's our ganglia. Parasympathetic neurons, the preganglionic ones, are the same as the sympathetic ones in being, they are all cholinergic, and therefore they all release acetylcholine. So that's easy to remember. And the communication here within these ganglia is always excitatory because the receptors found on the parasympathetic postganglionic neurons are also the nicotinic. acetylcholine receptors. That's also easy to remember. So EPSPs are the order of the day in parasympathetic communication. Now the main difference comes in and, uh, for the postganglionic neurons. Parasympathetic ones are also cholinergic and so they release acetylcholine at the varicosities rather than norepinephrine. So when you look at the cells in the organ being innervated, the responses are going to be mediated through obviously cholinergic receptors going to be found on these cells. All right, we talked about one type of cholinergic receptor, the nicotinic receptors. Uh, nicotinic receptors are not found in any cardiac smooth or gland cells. So there's a whole other category of cholinergic receptors. And these are what are called the muscarinic receptors. So these are found in all the effector cells innervated by parasympathetic neurons. And muscarinic receptors, again, the muscarinic, ref it comes from uh, muscarine, which is a compound which selectively binds to and activates these type of cholinergic receptors. But these are G-protein coupled receptors. So all muscarinic receptors are G-protein coupled receptors. And similar to the adrenergic receptors, there are subdivisions of muscarinic receptors. 
there's an M1, an M3, and an M5. And there's also an M2 and an M4. So in total, there's five different uh, subtypes of muscarinic receptors. These odd-numbered muscarinic receptors, generally, if they're present within the end organ, they're going to mediate excitatory effects. Whereas if the M2 or M4 receptor is present in the cells, this is generally going to lead to inhibitory effects, reduced activity. And again, it's, it's based upon the type of G protein that the receptor interacts with to affect the second messenger within a cell. All right, so just to think about this a little bit, autonomic neurons innervate the vast majority of tissues, effector tissues in the body, right? They innervate most every tissue except for skeletal muscle. And when all these body system responses are coordinated, a lot of that coordination falls on the efferent activity of autonomic neurons, sympathetic and parasympathetic. And the coordination in terms of the communication that, that occurs is largely through just two different neurotransmitters, norepinephrine released by sympathetic neurons, acetylcholine released by parasympathetic neurons. And those then determine how tissue activity is going to either increase or decrease, depending upon their effects. Uh, table 7-2 in the book. On page 240, summarizes the different types of neurotransmitters released as well as the different types of receptors found on the different tissues and the effect that those receptors have generally on the effector organs. So you can look at that table as a nice summary of what I, we just talked about. All right, so that's it for the autonomic nervous system. And this brings us to the last part of chapter seven, and this is section 7.2, which is on what Sherwood calls the somatic nervous system. And this simply refers to all the collection of motor neurons and their innervation of skeletal muscle. Right, that's the only type of tissue innervated by motor neurons. Uh, I'm going to end this here since I'm essentially out of time, and I'll continue this on in part two. All right, so now we're now on to lecture 13, part two, talking about motor neurons and their communication with skeletal muscle. So I brought in figure 7-4 in the book on page 244, which is a nice illustration of the innervation of a couple of motor neurons with some specific skeletal muscle cells. They're showing then 
a region of the spinal cord with two motor neurons. One is depicted in red and one is in blue, uh, just to highlight the, the, the difference between those two and the innervation of multiple muscle cells by each motor neuron. And in this figure, the term muscle fiber here, muscle fiber, this refers to an individual skeletal muscle cell. Right, so that's what muscle fiber means. And each branch of the motor neuron innervates a single muscle fiber. Right, each one of these branches here goes to specifically innervate only a single fiber. And importantly, each muscle fiber is innervated by only one motor neuron. So it doesn't receive input from more than one motor neuron. So its activity is dependent only on the activity of that single motor neuron. Now, the innervation that occurs, the site of communication, is what's called the neuromuscular junction. And that's here. So this is an actual electron. Uh, well, maybe not an electron micrograph, but it's a, an image, microscopy image, showing uh, a single neuromuscular junction, uh, probably from a frog. But they're showing how that neuromuscular junction relates to a lower magnification view, right? So if you magnify it up, this is what the neuromuscular junction looks like. And we want to take then a closer look at this junction because this is actually a quite highly specialized synapse with some characteristics and properties that are a little different from a normal neuron to neuron synapse. And unlike autonomic neurons that have varicosities that don't form a specialized synapse with the cells uh, within an organ, each motor neuron branch forms a highly specialized synapse. And that, the characteristics of that synapse uh, importantly determine the way in which excitation of the muscle fiber occurs. So we're going to look, magnify up a single neuromuscular junction 
and look at it kind of from a longitudinal view. So what I'm going to do is draw just the end of a motor neuron and then bring in the muscle fiber membrane. So this is a motor neuron, one branch of the axon. Now, motor neurons have multiple neurotransmitter-releasing sites at the neuromuscular junction, and instead of being called the axon terminal, uh, each of these neurotransmitter-releasing sites is what's called a terminal button. But it's pretty much analogous to uh, what an axon terminal is. And over here would be another terminal button. Now, I'm only drawing two, but a typical um, neuromuscular junction might have, you know, 10 or more of, of these little terminal buttons. The terminal buttons sit within, or they're nestled within the a shallow depression created by the plasma membrane of the muscle cell. So I'm going to show side view of the skeletal muscle cell surrounding these terminal buttons. This line then denotes the skeletal muscle fiber membrane. Plasma membrane. Right here. So down here, this is the cytoplasm of the skeletal muscle cell. Out here is the interstitial fluid. All right, the shallow depression, which I haven't drawn this <laughs> in a great way, but we'll go with it. The shallow depression of the membrane around the terminal buttons is what's referred to as the motor end plate. of the muscle cell membrane, right? It's just this shallow depression. It was originally called the motor implant because when these were first visualized by microscopy, uh, the shallow depression around these terminal buttons sort of looked like a dinner plate. And since these were motor neurons and they called it the motor implant. Now, motor neurons are cholinergic neurons. So they also release acetylcholine to communicate with the muscle cell. So in here, each of these terminal buttons then will draw some synaptic vesicles. And these vesicles are, are all filled with acetylcholine. When an action potential occurs on a motor neuron then, right, we have a depolarizing sodium propagating down as an action potential. And right, that's going to lead to depolarization of each of these terminal buttons. 
So this is meant to denote the action potential coming down. And the same process of exocytosis occurs in each of these terminal buttons as it does in a typical axon terminal and that voltage-gated calcium channels are activated by the depolarization and calcium influx occurs into the terminal button to trigger exocytosis. So we can draw some vesicles here undergoing exocytosis. And just to make this a little clear. All right, so this is where the acetylcholine is being released out into the neuromuscular junction cleft. Now, that acetylcholine then elicits the response in the muscle cell that's receiving the, the acetylcholine. Now, clearly, the skeletal muscle cell must have receptors that uh, recognize and bind to the acetylcholine. And remember, those are going to be the cholinergic receptors. And we said that cholinergic receptors come in one of two types. They're either nicotinic or muscarinic. All skeletal muscle fibers have nicotinic receptors. So in the motor end plate, there is, just draw some boxes here to denote that these are the nicotinic receptors. There's a high concentration of uh, nicotinic acetylcholine receptors present in the motor end plate membrane. Right. And these receptors are only found in the motor end plate. They're not found anywhere else along the muscle fiber. By the way, I should mention that the neuromuscular junction is typically located at the center of the muscle fiber. Rather than being on the end of the muscle fiber. And muscle fibers are quite long. We'll go into this in a little bit more detail as we get into chapter eight. And the neuromuscular junction is a very discrete segment uh, of the muscle fiber, and it usually sits, sits about at the center of the fiber. Muscle fibers also hold a plasma membrane potential, the resting plasma membrane potential is actually even more negative than a neurons, and it sits very close to the equilibrium potential for potassium. So we'll call it about minus 90 millivolts. And that's because it's even more negative than a neuron at, at rest because 
uh, muscle fibers have far fewer sodium leak channels. So if we have then, oops, resting plasma membrane potential of about minus 90 millivolts. Now we know from what I talked about for pre to post ganglionic communication that when acetylcholine binds to these nicotinic acetylcholine receptors, it triggers them to open and that allows for sodium influx, net sodium influx. Nicotinic acetylcholine receptor to open its channel. And there's net sodium influx occurs. which is going to depolarize the motor end plate. So let's draw some sodium ions coming in through the nicotinic receptors. So the depolarization is localized to the motor end plate when these nicotinic receptors are activated. Right, because that's where the sodium is coming in. That depolarization of the motor end plate is what's referred to as the end plate potential. I'll abbreviate it as EPP, just so I don't have to keep writing it. That is the localized depolarization occurring at the motor end plate due to the activation of the nicotinic acetylcholine receptors. Now, this is analogous to a graded potential in a postsynaptic neuron. But there are three important differences between an in-plate potential and a graded potential. That we're going to talk about. Right. Now we know what happens when a graded potential is produced by receptor activation in a postsynaptic neuron is that the graded potential starts to move by current flow along the membrane. Well, the same thing happens in, for the motor end plate, end plate potential. Right, so here is our localized depolarization. That localized depolarization is going to be attracted to the more adjacent regions of the plasma membrane, which is, are at minus 90 millivolts. And this is going to be on both sides of the motor end plate, where the plasma membrane potential is at minus 90 millivolts. So this current's going to move out by right, our depolarizing current 
moving along the membrane, which is going to bring, uh, begin to depolarize the regions just outside the neuromuscular junction. Uh, let me abbreviate this. To the regions just outside the neuromuscular junction. So how big is this in-play potential? Well, one action potential in the motor neuron triggers about a plus 40 millivolt, if not higher, depolarization. So plus 40 millivolt in plate potential. So the motor in plate depolarizes to at least from minus 90 to minus 50 millivolts or higher. That's in response to a single action potential in the motor neuron. And that's quite different from a graded potential where we said that you know a single presynaptic action potential will trigger maybe about a two millivolt depolarization uh, graded potential in a postsynaptic neuron. So the in-plate potential, one important difference is that the in-plate potential that occurs is much larger in uh, at the motor in plate than at a postsynaptic neuron. And there are re important reasons for this. First, more neurotransmitter is released at the neuromuscular junction compared to a neuro neuronal synapse. Uh, there are more neurotransmitter-releasing sites at the neuromuscular junction. So let me go back here. Just I'm going to change this. More neurotransmitter released by each terminal button compared to an axon terminal of a typical neuron. There's more neurotransmitter releasing sites in total because there are multiple terminal buttons within the neuromuscular junction. And the motor implant 
has a higher density of receptors. compared to a postsynaptic neuron. So for all these reasons, there's more neurotransmitter release by each terminal button compared to a, a single action potential. There are more of these sites at the neuromuscular junction, right? There are multiple terminal buttons. And there's a higher density of receptors on the motor end plate. This creates an overall larger activation of receptors on the motor end plate, and so you get a much larger ion permeability change, and so a larger end plate potential. Indeed, as the end plate potential occurs, this is sufficient You bring the muscle fiber to threshold. And we know what that means, right? Remember, threshold in a muscle fiber is pretty close to what it is in a typical neuron, about minus 50 millivolts, where this is going to trigger opening of voltage-gated channels. sodium and potassium channels. So it's going to trigger an action potential in the muscle fiber. So coming back up to our diagram here, when this depolarizing current that I've drawn in red moves out Right? This is positively charged current being attracted to the negatively charged adjacent region of membrane. It brings this adjacent region of membrane to threshold. At about minus 50 millivolts. Remember, this depolarizing current doesn't have to move very far at all to trigger opening of voltage-gated channels because the membrane, maybe I should use a different color here, the plasma membrane immediately outside of the neuromuscular junction contains a very high density of voltage-gated sodium and potassium channels. So that current moves without decrementing hardly at all because it doesn't have to move very far. And once those channels reach threshold, then an action potential is going to be triggered. So let's assume that these are both voltage-gated sodium and potassium channels. From here, you get an action potential triggered that begins to propagate along the muscle fiber membrane and it's going to be triggered on either side of the neuromuscular junction. So the action potential is actually going to propagate out in both directions from the neuromuscular junction to either side of the muscle fiber. So it's not just propagating in one direction, it's propagating in both directions. Right. And 
This effectively means that there's a one-to-one -one relationship between motor neurons that generate an action potential and the muscle fibers that generate an action potential. For each motor neuron action potential and action potential is generated on the muscle fiber. There's a one-to-one -one relationship. So if you notice here that there's no type of summation is required at the neuromuscular junction to bring the muscle fiber to threshold. Which is quite different from a postsynaptic neuron, which re requires summation. <laughs> Now, the action potential that's triggered on the muscle fiber is what then is necessary to cause contraction of the muscle fiber. So this is actually the signal to cause contraction. So obviously it's crucial that this electrical excitation of the muscle fiber occurs through uh, the release of acetylcholine. The other thing to note is that since all motor neurons are cholinergic, and all muscle fibers have the nicotinic acetylcholine receptors at their neuromuscular junction, then all communication is excitatory. Whenever a motor neuron is stimulated, then the muscle fiber is going to be stimulated. It's going to be excited, depolarized. There are no motor neurons that cause IPSPs or you know, hyperpolarization of a muscle fiber to inhibit its contraction. So that's different from you know, autonomic innervation of smooth muscle, for example, where the sympathetic or parasympathetic can have opposite effects on actively stimulating contraction or actively inhibiting contraction. Uh, you can't get motor neurons that actively inhibit uh, contraction of skeletal muscle because they're all, all the communication is excitatory. Now, let's talk about not only that no summation is required to bring a muscle fiber to threshold, no summation 
And remember, when we're talking about summation here, we're referring to the summation of the end plate potential, right? There doesn't have to be summation occur to cause a large enough end plate potential to bring the fiber to threshold. And not only is it not required, no summation is actually possible at the neuromuscular junction. So the end plate potential magnitude does not vary. If there's no summation, then it can't vary. And that's a second important difference to a typical graded potential. It doesn't vary in magnitude. And why is no summation possible? Well, one reason is that, remember, summation can be spatial or temporal. There's no spatial summation because the neuromuscular junction only has input, or I should say each muscle fiber only has one neuromuscular junction that is innervated by one motor neuron. Therefore, there can't be spatial summation because there are no more than one motor neuron that innervates any given muscle fiber. And second, there's no temporal summation possible either even at the single neuromuscular junction that's present. And the reason for this is that, critically, the in-plate potential only lasts for about two milliseconds in duration. It's over as quickly as an action potential. So if the duration of an in-plate potential is the same as the action potential in the motor neuron, then there's no possible way for temporal summation to occur. Remember, a, a typical graded potential in a postsynaptic neuron lasts I said lasts for about 40 milliseconds or so on average. Well, that much longer duration allows for a second action potential to come down to release more neurotransmitter to give a summative response. But if the in-plate potential is over so quickly, then there's no possible way for another action potential to come down soon enough to allow a summation to occur in a temporal manner. And the reason that the in-plate potential is so short well the basic reason is because the acetylcholine is rapidly removed from the synapse much more quickly from the neuromuscular junction uh, cleft than at a typical neuron synapse.
And the main reason for this difference in terms of its very short duration is that there, the enzyme that degrades acetylcholine is present at a very high density within the cleft. The enzyme responsible for degradation is called acetylcholine esterase. And it has a very high concentration in the synapse, or in the cleft, I should say, of the neuromuscular junction. So you get very rapid degradation, and that rapidly turns off the nicotinic receptors, and so it rapidly ends the end plate potential. All right, so... The key differences in the end plate potential, uh, the three differences that I mentioned, is that its magnitude is much greater. Uh, its magnitude is invariant, right? There's no summation that occurs. And its duration is much shorter because of the rapid removal of acetylcholine. And that rapid removal prevents temporal summation from occurring. And this very rapid means of uh, turning on and turning off the motor end plate response is really important for uh, affecting how skeletal muscle functions in response to excitation by a motor neuron. And the last thing I'll do here to end chapter seven is just bring in this figure from the book which is essentially the figure that I just drew. Describing this communication. And this is uh, figure 7-5 in the book on page 245. Okay. So... This is illustrating really the functional properties of the neuromuscular junction. All right, so that ends this lecture.